everyone, Alex here, and today on the Weird Era podcast, I'm sitting down with friend of LSHB and one of our favorite Montreal-based authors, Eli Tarek Al-Beshalani Lynch, about their newest book, The Good Arabs. Eli is a queer Arab poet living in Geojage, unceded Ganyan Gehaga territory. Their work has appeared in the Best Canadian Poetry 2018 anthology, Guts, Carte Blanche, The Shade Journal, The New Quarterly, Arc Poetry Magazine, and elsewhere. They were long-listed for the CBC Poetry Prize in 2019. Their first book, Not Body, was published by Metatron Press in September 2020. Swinging from post-explosion Beirut to a Montreal balcony in summer, the verse and prose poems in The Good Arabs ground the reader in place, language, and the body. Peeling and rinsing radishes, dancing as a preteen to Nancy Ajram, being drenched in stairs on the city bus. The collection is an interlocking and rich offering of the speaker's communities, geographical surroundings, both expansive and precise, and family, both biological and chosen. The Good Arabs gifts the reader with insight into cycles and repetition in ourselves and our broken nations. The genre-defying collection maps Arab and trans identity through the immensity of experience felt in one body, the sorrow of citizens let down by their countries, and the garbage crisis in Lebanon. Ultimately, it shows how we might love amid dismay, adore the pungent and the ugly, and exist in our multiplicity across spaces. Hi, Eli. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so The Good Arabs is your second book of poetry and prose to be released uh, in about a year's time. So first off, I do want to acknowledge how cool and special that is. Um, mm-hmm. After reading The Good Arabs, I found this really interesting contrast between it and Not Body. Um, being that Not Body exists in this very physical space while The Good Arabs reads more emotionally, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess another way to say this is both are sensory experiences, but Not Body seems to be an exploration of inside, blunt, factual, while The Good Arabs is an exploration of out. It's subjective. It's explorative. Um, you're mm-hmm. addressing these things that exist outside your body. And while we do get the physicality of it, external forces are at play in a deeper way. Um, is this something you felt conscious of while writing The Good Arabs? And am I on the right track? I, you are, I think. I, I don't think I was exactly conscious of it. I mean, I definitely was conscious of kind of talking about uh, stuff that was beyond the self and kind of looking at the the more the macro level. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was definitely conscious. But I think when you talk about it, in contrast it's a really fun way of seeing it because uh, it is true like the not bodies you know and consciously so was so uh you know interested in the body and what is going on and kind of um not over sentimentalizing it um Mm -hmm. on purpose because you know that can that can be kind of um i would say like a cliche about writing about um, mm-hmm. pain or disability or illness. Um, whereas, yeah, with the good Arabs, I was kind of trying to start it off from a place of memory and feeling and explode it out to a place of, mm. uh, the macro with, you know, more the political, social, um, economic situation going on both in Canada and in Lebanon. Yeah. And like I just said too, you know, it just came across as so much more, like I, subjective was one of the words that mm. that I found when I was trying to search for the the words on how to write about the good Arabs. It it is very you know 
like you said, kind of the macro level you're, you've pulled out. Um, I know that The Good Arabs is actually a book that's been years in the making. Uh, I obviously always want to avoid asking cliche questions, but I do have a couple just selfishly that I'm Mm -hmm. so curious about um, because, and you do address a lot of these things in the good Arabs, but recent events have really had an influence on the work, even outside of a global pandemic. Um, So I do want to ask you to talk a bit about why you wanted to start this project and then how these external forces uh, shaped it over the years to, to become what it is now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually started working on this book about seven years ago, I would say, Um, though it wasn't in book form. I wasn't conceptualizing it as a book. Um, I was kind of writing uh, poetry and exploring what it was to write poetry kind of for the first time or for the the first time in a more, um, how do I say it, like in a, well, I was at school, you know, so I was kind of thinking more consciously about poetry rather than you know, these little poems I used to write as a teenager, um, which, you know, were fun, but um, definitely a different, a different beast. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, it's like kind of coming to poetry and being like, what can a poem be? And what am I interested in exploring? And of course there was kind of a through line that was coming through, but they were just separate Mm -hmm. poems at the time. Um, And then maybe probably four years ago, I started thinking about, the poems as a collection and kind of trying to find that through line um, mm-hmm. and deciding, you know, what poems work together, which ones needed to kind of live on their own and not be part of this project and which ones needed to come in to the good Arabs, which I hadn't even called that at the time. It was actually called not body first. Um, which oh, funny. that's so funny. Cause I had a poem called not body that mm-hmm. I had written while at Concordia. So about like six years ago, um, and I was kind of trying to find, you know, like I said, the through line with all my poems. And then I realized at some point, well, maybe I'm writing two books at the same time. And mm. then I kind of had to split them. And so Not Body then became part of this other project, which I decided to call Not Body because it made more sense. Because it was this more this exploration of, you know, the body and what it does and, and the physicality mm. of it and pain. And then with The Good Arabs, I started you know, kind of culling all these other poems that, you know, were mostly at that point more poems that stemmed from memory and place and thinking through different, you know, memories I had of Lebanon or, you know, different fictionalized Mm -hmm. situations that I was was placing on memory. And so at that time, about four years ago, I guess, that's where that the book was. And um, I took a and then I started, I wrote Home Equals Garbage as one of the first kind of, I would say, grounding poems um, yeah. that were kind of addressing larger things. I, I wrote that after coming back from Lebanon and having, mm. um, I think I was there for a month and the garbage crisis was ongoing. Um, and it was just so visceral, like the smells and just the presence yeah. of garbage and you know, the experiences my family had dealing with living in a garbage country, basically, and Lebanon's quite small. So, um, and so that kind of was the first instance of going beyond the self, I would say, and beyond just memory. Um, 
and then writing not body really also um was the next turning point because i wrote mm -hmm. not body taking a break from the good arabs and had thought that the good arabs was done and i was then writing not body and trying to figure out where uh who would publish the good arabs and what i wanted to do with it and once i finished not body i did a whole other um revisiting of the manuscript and i had just learned so much from writing not body yeah. uh, both in in you know the the formal ways that that i wanted to approach poetry um and so then i i kind of reworked a bunch of it and the the conversations with arabs came out of that um and um a few other poems that are kind of um yeah more on the macro level but blending mm -hmm. memory so yeah. i i think that probably answers your question <laughs> yeah 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 no it definitely does it, like i said you know just because to start a project like you were saying six or seven years ago it's so like you know sprinkled with 2020 events and and like global mm -hmm. events um so yeah, I just I wanted to let you talk about that for a little bit. Your work is inherently tinged with activism as well. Um, I don't know if that's really necessarily the right way to put it. I don't know if you would agree, um, but you always find a way to work in a space that allows you to make these direct calls to action in a way that isn't preaching or self-righteous. It's very factual. Uh, there are things happening that we have to address or we'll lose. And again, in the good Arabs, this is definitely explored. You have the 2020 Beirut explosion, the ongoing Lebanese garbage crisis, racial injustice, climate crisis. Um, how has this become something that is tied to your writing in such a direct way? I mean, first and foremost, I guess my writing process is a process of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when I when I first start writing, it's kind of me working through specific ideas and specific concerns that I have. And um, all those things that you mentioned are constantly on my brain or yeah. on my brain, in my brain, on the brain. And um, <laughs> something about the brain. <laughs> But there's, you know, things I'm constantly thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of often do a lot of thinking before I get to the point of writing things down. Um, so I would kind of circle through things in my head. And definitely these things, like I said, are things that I've been quite concerned about and thinking about. Um, and, you know, I've been doing a bunch of mutual aid in my neighborhood. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and so all of these things, it, it feels like it makes sense that they seep into my work because they are constantly things that I'm thinking about and contending with. Um, and it's nice to hear you say that it doesn't feel preachy because that's my worst nightmare, <laughs> you know? No, 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 no. Yeah. Like, I, like I said, it, it comes across as very factual. Like it really sinks into and seeps into most of your writing, I would say. Um, in what ways does your queerness and your Arabness influence how you personally approach activism? In terms of activism, I guess I don't necessarily consider my writing activism. I, I more so consider um, the work that I do outside of that, kind of activism or activism adjacent. Yeah. Um, and I think that... Um, being queer has taught me a lot about 
um, community and mutual aid and building, you know, family and uh, community that that looks a bit different than what we mm-hmm. usually consider those things. Um, and then, you know, being Arab also has taught me a lot about the collective and thinking about the collective and thinking about family in whichever way that comes. Mm-hmm. And I think, so I think that those two things have kind of taught me how to invest in community and how to invest in people and how to think beyond myself, I would say. Um, so I guess that, that's, you know, the kind of the things that those identities have taught me. And then, you know, being a queer Arab trans person in the world, it just, I mean, I guess you can do that and not care about what's going on, but I feel like the fact that things are constantly in my face and constantly present and, you know, like oppressive things or whatever, um, I don't know, it makes it hard for me not to want to do something about it. Um, yeah. I've always had a very strong sense of justice since I was a kid, and I think that kind of has continued throughout my life. Um while I do also ask these questions about calls to action and activism, there is a line from the poem The Cycle on page 37 that states, read, I will not describe to you what violations occur, what a prison looks like, if only to stop the violence from recurring on the page. I think most of your work uh, has this level of sensitivity to it. The question here being, is it effortful to write using the language and directness of activism while simultaneously retaining sensitivity? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, it's definitely something (laughs) that I have thought about a bunch in terms of Mm. my approach to writing, um, you know, any... I guess any subject, but particularly sensitive subjects. Um, I think I thought, I think a lot about writing violence in the ways that I feel certain violences are written gratuitously. Um, Mm. And I think that line was particularly thinking through not wanting um, to do that, particularly a violence that hasn't happened to me, but that could happen to me, you know? living you know like thinking through being queer in Lebanon and what that looks like for other people who are queer in Lebanon and my not having necessarily experienced those intense violences but also living with the fear that I might um Mm. and and also thinking about who my audience is this does touch on what we were saying before about not necessarily want or what I was saying before but not wanting to feel didactic and I think uh, have I think my approach to not wanting to feel didactic is is having that sensitivity and, and thinking mm-hmm. beyond um, beyond that like I think sometimes with with like activism capital A um, yeah. there's a certain directness like you say but then there's also a certain kind of maybe black and white vision of things. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, you're trying to get a message across and you're trying to get, have, you know, change something. And that often doesn't allow for that kind of gray area and for um, considerations of other things beyond your like message that you're trying to get across or beyond the thing that you're trying to change. And I think 
while that works for, you know, a call to action or a protest song or, you know, a specific uh, thing that you're trying to do when it comes to poetry, the thing that I like about poetry and the thing I like about fiction and about writing is that gray area. It's the, the little bits here and there. And I think that those, those gray areas and those little bits and those little sounds and textures, like that's what I want in my work. And I don't think that within my work, it's not, it's, it's actually uh, better for me to include those alongside kind of a directness in terms of whatever message I'm trying to get across because um, I think it makes people think more than maybe that, you know, kind of directness would. Um, and it gives people space to, you know, not necessarily push up right against it, but then for it to kind of bleed in and for people to, you know, more subtly get at the same point, but maybe not with that same like defensiveness too. Um, do you think, do you think you're an emotionally sensitive person and are all poets? I don't think all poets are emotionally sensitive. Definitely not. <laughs> I've definitely read some poetry by people who I'm like, nope, <laughs> no emotional sensitivity at all. Um, I do think I'm emotionally sensitive, however. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I think it, it's, it probably helps my poetry, but I wouldn't say that all poets are like that. Um, I really care about communication and how I communicate with people. I care about, you know, um, coming to like an understanding with people or now I'm, I'm not centrist. That's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I don't, I, but I, I do care. I like, I generally think that I, I care a lot and that makes me emotionally sensitive. And I think I care about people and I care about the world. And so I think mm -hmm. that definitely influences my poetry a lot, but yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Lebanese garbage crisis and the massive mm -hmm. influence it had on the good Arabs. Um, and this is a joke, but can I say the strongest theme in the book is literal garbage? Um, <laughs> it's just this terribly evocative imagery and the smell of it follows you throughout the book's pages in such a smart way. Um, and, you know, it speaks to bigger global issues. And this is what I'm talking about and what I mean when I say that, you're, that your work is inherently tinged with activism. Um the last lines of home equals garbage early in the book set up how you use this exploration in the rest of the book so well. Um, from page 11, my uncle's lungs filled with garbage. This country is corrupt, says my uncle, and I ask him why he's still here. It's home, he says, his nose plugged. My family came back 18 years ago. This is home, they say, lungs filled with garbage. Where do we find solace when home equals garbage? <laughs> hmm. where do we find solace so I think that's what the book is trying to figure out right <laughs> you know I think it's like the whole thing is immensely um, complicated it's mm -hmm. complicated when I hear my family talk about it particularly mm -hmm. as someone who has lived in Lebanon and now lives here you know Yeah. I think I think ideas of home are complicated for a lot of people, but particularly for racialized people or immigrants, um, queer people and trans people too, you know? So there is something that, you know, I'm, I'm contending with also a history of people contending with this. 
Um, yeah, where to find solace? That I cannot tell you beyond, um, I don't know, finding the little things. I think that's what the book is trying to do too, you know, finding those that. little things. <laughs> Feels like a big question. I'm like, oh God, well, where can we find solace? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say too while you were while you were like thinking about your answer I was like I, you know I, I realize I am asking you very big questions in this interview <laughs> and I'm gonna ask more uh, nice but I'm happy to talk about garbage if you want to talk about garbage please it's like I'm please <laughs> because it is well, so I, yeah. go ahead go ahead no I want to hear what you're, the, the rest of what you're gonna say <laughs> No, I was literally just going to say that it, it really is this concurrent theme through the whole thing. Uh, several of the pieces are have garbage in the title. I think one of them, and it's such a good title, In the Heart of the Heart of More Garbage. Um, and it is terribly evocative. Um, it's really kind of this disturbing thing. And it's trash. Like It's garbage. It's literally big black mm-hmm. bags of garbage. Um, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear. I mean, I I got really obsessed with the garbage crisis for some reason. I feel like it really, mm-hmm. yeah, like it it really stood for you know way more than it actually was. But it was such a yeah, yeah like you say, it's, it's just garbage. Um, and like I think until that moment, I hadn't seen something so small or like seemingly small. You know, you put your garbage out, someone comes, they pick it up, it's gone, and yeah, be, you know. Of course, I, I had thought about the environmental impacts of garbage and the, the you know, the, the massive amounts of garbage that we use as humans and how that's impacting the environment, but also how that is often treated as the reason why the environment is, you know, collapsing, yeah. basically, yeah. Uh, when actually it's just, you know, it's other people, not other people's garbage, but a corporations' garbage that actually should yeah. be the, the center. But I think, yeah, to come back to the, per, you know, personal garbage, I just, I was kind of immensely like shocked and astounded and also really, really obsessed with the fact that this, you know, first of all, that a garbage company could be like, nope, we're not picking up garbage. And I was like, oh, yeah. didn't know you could do that. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they, the, the garbage company was like, well, you're not paying us, so we're not going to pick up the garbage. And I was like, that makes sense. You know, I'm not, I'm all for a workers being like, maybe we don't do this because we're not getting paid. And then, I mean, the company itself was like, no, we're not going to. But then the way that that impacted the whole country so intensely yeah. and the ways that then that created more corruption within the government trying to figure out what to do with this garbage yeah, it just became so such a grounding force in terms of, you know, all the things that I was trying to address. But then it also, like you said, it kind of lingers with you. And I, I really mm-hmm. wanted to work with, um, I, I really like working with that kind of grounding image that sticks with you and it kind of is a pull, uh, like a pull through throughout um, the work. And I thought if garbage stuck with me that much, it probably will stick with other people too. <laughs> It did. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, we kind of joke about garbage being one of the main themes in The Good Arabs, when in reality it's family and home. And 
I don't know how to describe this, but this idea of unsafe safety, um, these are the things that are the pulse and the lifeblood of this book. Um, there's this idea that speaks across so many different identities of home being this safe and warm space, but also maybe not when we pull the camera back. Um, an apartment might be a safe space, but the country it's in might not be. Your teta might be a safe space, but the family as a whole might not be. Uh, why is it necessary to claim space in places that might be the least safe of all? I mean, I think I'm, I, I would say I'm a mix of like an optimist and a pessimist um, in that I don't, I don't think most places are safe, Fair. but then I am delightfully surprised when there are places that do feel grounding and safe, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like supremely delighted by those things. And I think that probably impacts the way I write and the way I write about um, safety and home and joy and love. Um, and I think for me, it's hard to approach those, like, you know, those topics and like safety and love and hope and joy, et cetera, et cetera, straight on. Mm -hmm. So I imagine, I, I, I know that I address them kind of at an angle, um, particularly because I, I, I think I worry about the way writing those things can feel cliche. Mm -hmm. um, and so I definitely get at them from other ways. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the world does feel inherently unsafe. Um, and I don't want to shy away from like talking about that and thinking about that. But I also don't want to be all doom and gloom because there are things that are beautiful. And I think those definitely coexist. So. I'm obviously biased, uh, but I love how Montreal-centric your writing always <laughs> is. Um, I think this city is so poetic and beautiful and simple and complicated, uh, but I really find that you tend to center intimacy when you write about Montreal. Um, mm. It's sunsets and parks and observations, and there's a comfort and ease whenever you do write about it. Even a woman on the bus staring you down in an unkind way is this kind of uncomfortable intimacy. Um, and I want to tie this back to the line on page 24 from It Was. Uh, Montreal is a transitional city. I'm still here. Can you talk about this idea of Montreal being a transitional city and how intimacy plays a role in that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote It Was as I was finishing my degree at Concordia, which then was a time when a lot of people I knew were also finishing their degree and therefore mm -hmm. leaving the city. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I made at that moment the conscious choice to stay in Montreal uh, because I do love Montreal and it, it definitely has felt like, you know, I moved here when I was 17, almost 18. And yeah. it has felt like a place that has allowed for so much growth and change for me and, um, I do love Montreal for, you know, despite, you know, some of its, some of its faults, it's like a, yeah, it's one of those cities that you just, you, you love and you love it's like weird little cracky, like broken pieces, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think, yeah, it, it definitely, and, you know, now at the stage where I'm at, having been out of school for five years, 
there's like, it feels like there's going to be another phase of people leaving. And I know people mm. who are, you know, in a, a slightly, you know, five years older than me that are also experiencing people leaving. Um, and I think for me, it feels really, yeah, I'm really committed to staying here. Um, and so I think that's partly, and I'm committed to staying here because I love it and because I, um, yeah. yeah, care about Montreal. So I think that really seeps into my work. I guess that's probably a way that I write about love and joy through, you know, through the city and through images, I guess. Because I think, yeah, it feels a lot nice, but not nicer, that's not the right word, but it feels less overt to talk about love that way and to mm. talk about intimacy that way and, um, you know, to think about the sunsets that are especially beautiful in Park X. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to think about those little moments, like the daily moments and the ways that, you know, beauty and fun and care can crop up in those moments. We finally get uh, Eli Tarek's brand of fiction in The Good Arabs in the short story, Do You Run When You Hear the Sound of a Loud Crack? I've said to you a couple times over the years, including literally a couple days ago, that I'm so <laughs> curious as to what your published fiction looks like, if not for selfish reasons. Um, one of the things that I was surprised about was the inclusion of, for lack of a better word, literal magic. Uh, there is a gym. <laughs> this story is very much set in reality. Tragic events unfold, but still there's this mystical being that is present and interactive. Um, since your work is normally so grounded in realism, did it surprise you that your fiction would be so magical? I mean, I think that my work is grounded in realism. And I think, like you said, the piece is also in some ways grounded in realism. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that e even in my poetry, like, especially I think thinking through religion and thinking mm -hmm. through these like religious figures, particularly, like, you know, Christian Maronite um, religious practice that, um, I, you know, there's like the statue, Haditha is this like looming statue of Mary um, and there's this kind of um, myth in Lebanon, I guess, mm. that she like has cried and people have seen it, you know, and that, you know, she's like healed people and stuff. And yeah, so yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I'm, I'm like kind of fascinated by that, those kinds of stories and the way that religion feels a bit like magic to me and mm. not because I'm religious, but rather because, you know, it, it definitely hugs the line between, you know, religion and fantasy. And so I'm like, yeah interested in that and I think um with the short story I kind of pushed that further and went into exploring this gin but also I think when I was writing this short story um initially I wasn't gonna set it technically in Lebanon I wasn't gonna name any places uh yeah. because I was so worried about writing about something that just happened in Lebanon which is you know the explosion um which I wanted to write about because I was trying to contend with what happened and trying to, you know, yes. um, explore it through writing for myself. But I didn't want to write about it in a way that felt like I was, you know, um, writing like a op-ed about it or giving my opinion about how I felt about it or whatever, because I think that's mm -hmm. what people 
often expect of you when something happens and you know, like the Middle East or the Arab world and that yeah. particularly when it have, has to do with bombs and stuff. And I was like, well, I don't want to give people that. Um, and so writing this short story, I was trying to figure out the, you know, how I was going to write about it without writing about it and without mm-hmm. feeling like I was forced to, 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 you know, comment on it. Um, and so my first decision was to set it 20 years in the future um, which gave felt like it gave me enough distance to talk about it and to talk about other things happening in Lebanon and in the world without, you know, directly commenting on what's happening right now. And then um, I've always been fascinated by jinn and by, um, you know, fantastical creatures. And so initially I didn't have the jinn in there and once once I was writing the story, I was like, something's missing, you know? It feels mm. like it needs it needs that, you know, kind of fantastical element to kind of pull it together. Um, and in some ways, to, to make it make sense, um, despite it being the most unrealistic part. <laughs> um, and then I got really excited to write this, like, slightly gender queer, or not slightly, very gender queer, very yes. um, gender switching, uh, very queer creature. Um, and I felt nice to put my spin on, you know, the, the kind of the traditional stories of the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the end, I was like, I also want to have fun with this. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of the the last motivation behind that. Um. Is this a format that you see yourself um, working through more in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been interested in short stories and I would like to write more of them, but I think I need to um, practice <laughs> or, you know, to write <laughs> a lot more. Yeah. Um, but I do, I actually am taking this short story and I'm thinking of turning it into a, a novel, possibly, which is what I'm trying to work on right now. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm kind of, I turned it into more like a fragmented narrative, um, kind of trying to work with my poetic chops and insert them into into fiction and kind of be a bit more experimental in terms of what I'm doing. So yeah. We'll see. It might happen. <laughs> it might come out eventually. You, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, at one point while I was writing this interview, I actually Googled the word Arabness just to confirm that it was a, a, a term that was used. Um, mm-hmm. At the top of the Google results, you know, sometimes there's a direct, bold, like large quote. Well, usually when you ask a question and it's giving you a direct answer. Um, mm-hmm. When you Google the word Arabness, one of these pops up and it reads in the current political discourse, Arabness is usually equated with backwardness, fanaticism, ineptitude, outward hostility to the Western world and its touted humanistic and enlightened principles of democracy, freedom and economic and social openness. It links to an article from MIT entitled on Arabs and Arabness by Nasser Rabat, but really shows up without any context. Um, and I found it very jarring that that was the automated Google answer to the question Arabness. Um, Was the good Arabs a way for you to explore and take apart a response to the question of Arabness like that one? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, the 
even the title comes from um in some ways a a response to that and mm. um a rejection of that idea um i think it's hard particularly in the west writing about arabness or being an arab without thinking of those ideas and without kind of feeling like you you know you have to write against those ideas mm-hmm. um and you know the parts of the conversations with arabs are kind of contending with those ideas and kind of thinking through um you know what it means to have an identity that is perceived in such a hostile way um mm-hmm. and perceived as a threat um then the other part was that within the arab world there's a history of the word arab um and there's often depending um i think most arab countries actually have had a rejection in some part of the word arab um from like a nationalistic um mm. per, uh, not perspective but um approach i guess or or just you know kind of putting the nation in front of this like larger identity yeah but then yeah, there's yeah. also because also there was a moment in arab history where there's like a some kind of governmental organization that encompasses all the arab countries and you know they make decisions and whatnot and so there's been kind of a push and pull against the idea of arabness um and then more recently probably within people of my generation and also people slightly older but probably you know not older than 40 i would say um who are also pushing against an islamophobic tendency to try to distance oneself from arabness mm. um a lot of younger arabs are reclaiming the word or you know reinforcing the fact that they are arabs um to also push against that. Yeah. Um and so, you know, I feel like the term the word arab is quite loaded um depending where you like which perspective you look from and yeah, I think the good yeah. arabs was really trying to contend with how how um complex the word is and how much mm-hmm. there is going on behind it um without also um holding arabs accountable to certain things as well you know and so mm-hmm. like the title it's a like you know it's like trying to remind people that arabs aren't all bad but also that like you know like thinking through goodness and what what that means and not giving ourselves like a a, a huge pass because of xyz you know yeah you um i mean you do directly answer the question in the good Arabs, are you a good Arab? Um, Is this a question that you've gotten in a lot of interviews? Do people ask you this? (laughs) No, I haven't yet. I mean, who knows? Maybe that will be a question that people ask me. (laughs) I think it was more like I was, that was a moment of like really being playful with those conversations. Yeah. Um, and inserting the speaker and like myself as the speaker um, and, you know, directly poking at the audience um, that I have a lot of fun with. 
Um, but no, no one has asked me that. I mean, you can ask me that if you'd like. <laughs> it probably won't be. Eli, that do you now. think you're a good Arab? <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Depends who you ask, truly. <laughs> um. You close the good Arabs with such boldness in can we breathe when it is all garbage? How would you answer that question right now in this interview? We can breathe. We can breathe a bit difficult with a bit of difficulty, you know, and I think, um, yeah, I think uh, I'm trying to figure that out. How, how do we continue and how do we breathe and how do we do kind of the most basic things? when things do feel like garbage, you know, as a, for using garbage as a metaphor, but, you know, even when you're around garbage and smelling garbage, like, how do we continue on? Mm -hmm. I think we do. I mean, I don't think, I think my book and me as a person, um, I'm like quite hopeful in some ways. I don't think I could continue writing or living or being in community with people if I didn't have some hope that mm. it might not always be garbage or that we can have a little less garbage. That's it. That's all I have for us today. Um, Eli, thank you so, so much uh, for joining me and for coming on Weed Era. Um, you know, we love you. We'll always have, uh, have your books in our little space. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, everybody. You can get, uh, the good Arabs at St. Henry books and wherever, uh, books are sold, uh, shop independent though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks listeners. <laughs> <laughs>